with a woman caught in adultery. Then they all went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again at the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law said, In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to run on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stopped, stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to walk away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she says. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Bible reading this morning contains Ricky Gervais's favourite Bible verse. Yeah, I thought that would get your attention. Ricky Gervais's favourite Bible verse. Some time ago, he tweeted the following. I'm going to clean up his language a little bit. Uh, but he said, as you probably guessed, I'm not a religious person. No way, Ricky. Um, but my favourite line in the Bible is, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. It basically means, says Ricky, oh, shut the F up, you're an idiot too sometimes. Thanks, Jesus. Is that what it means? Oh, shut the F up, you're an idiot too sometimes. It's certainly been taken that way by all sorts of people who want to suggest that Jesus adopts a sort of anything goes attitude to how we live and especially our sexual conduct. In fact, this verse has been used in debates in the Church of England to say, look, we all sin. Who are we to point the finger at how other people live their lives? Live and let live. I think there are two problems with using this story uh, to make that point, to support a sort of live and let live, anything goes attitude to sexual ethics. The first problem is the problem with basing a point of principle on a single Bible passage that we're not even sure belongs here in the first place. Did you notice that it's in smaller font and in italics and it has a line uh, before and after? And the reason is explained in the text immediately before it. Can you see there in the church Bibles immediately before the start of chapter eight, we're on page 1073. And that little bit of explanatory text says this, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7 verse 53 to 8, 11. 
A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7:36, John 21:25, Luke 23:38, sorry 21:38 or Luke 24:53. So this is a text of uncertain authority. Not only does it appear in different places in different manuscripts of the Bible, but in the earliest manuscripts they don't have it at all. Now, we might think that's a little bit embarrassing. We aren't even sure of the text of our own Bibles. But actually, isn't it hugely reassuring that our Bible publishers are honest and transparent about what we're sure about and what we're not sure about? They're not hiding anything. The vast majority of the Bible's text, the vast majority of it, is incredibly well established and clear. It is the most reliable of any ancient text by far. But our publishers are honest that there are a few places where we're just not sure whether a passage belongs here or not. The other uh, similar place is the longer ending of Mark's Gospel and there's a similar note in our Bibles there. When our Muslim friends say to us, the Bible's been changed, actually, we're on very safe grounds. We can say to them, please give us details. They can't, by the way. And we can ask them whether their own holy book has the same evidence and the same scholarship and the same transparency to give them confidence that they're reading what Muhammad dictated. It hasn't, by the way. But all of this does mean that we need to be very careful about basing a point of principle, like anything goes in sexual ethics, on a passage that may not belong here at all. That's why we're looking at this passage out of order. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but we've gone through the whole of chapters seven and eight, and now we're coming back to this bit, um, because I think the original flow of John's gospel goes straight from chapter seven, verse 52, to eight, verse 12. But I do think this passage is worth us looking at, especially because it's so often used to argue that anything goes. Actually, the second problem with using this story to support an anything goes sexual ethic is that actually that's not what the story says at all. Let's have a look at it. I think a helpful way in is to ask the question, who's on trial? in the story. Who's on trial? It seems obvious that it's the woman who is on trial. Let's look down again at verse uh, 2. It says, at dawn Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered round him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Can you picture the scene? It's like an open-air courtroom. The accused is led in and put in the dock. She's been caught in the very act of adultery. And it's a serious charge. 
One of the worst offences a Jewish person could commit is one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. When we looked at the Ten Commandments back in the autumn, we saw that because marriage is a picture of God's intimate, committed relationship with his people, adultery, which is marriage breaking, is a picture of idolatry, a shocking act of unfaithfulness towards our holy gods. And they're quite right that in the law of Moses, the punishment for adultery was death. So the woman stands accused of a serious crime, a crime deserving death. But she isn't really the one who's on trial here, is she? Did you spot it? The one they really want to accuse is Jesus himself, verse six. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, accusing Jesus. Whoever put this story at this point in John's gospel was using it to illustrate the wider debate that's going on in these chapters between Jesus and the Jewish religious authorities of the day. We've been looking at it these last few weeks. We saw in chapter seven, verse 32, they've already made one attempt to arrest him. And by the end of chapter eight, do you remember, it's Jesus himself who's threatened with stoning. And so they seize on this woman as a test case, a trap for Jesus. Will Jesus uphold the law of Moses and forfeit the popularity he's built up with the crowds as he's taught a message of grace and inclusion. If he does, he'll risk the wrath of the Romans who quite jealously guarded their right to the death penalty. Or on the other hand, will he be exposed as not really upholding the law of Moses at all? Is he a religious imposter, a heretic? There's the trap. But typically, Jesus turns the trap around and uses it to expose their own guilt. First, he crouches down and he seems to doodle on the ground with his finger. It looks like a deliberate act of insolence, a refusal to respect their authority. But then in verse seven, when they keep on questioning him, he stands up and says that famous line, let the one who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. And then he goes back to his doodling. With that simple answer, he turns the tables and actually he puts the religious leaders themselves on trial. Let the one who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. More literally, the one of you without sin, the first stone on her throw. Go on then. If you're so innocent yourselves, go for it. And we start to look at the scene in a new light. Here's this woman having been caught in the very act of adultery, dragged in in front of all these powerful men, probably dressed in their elaborate religious robes. We can only guess how she's dressed having been caught in the very act. They refer to such women. What they mean is sluts. She's shamed, humiliated, 
by these powerful men. She's threatened with stoning. The scene could be transferred to any repressive religious regime today. We might think of the morality police in Iran or in any number of other cultures today. But let's look closer. Where's the man that she was committing adultery with? The law of Moses said they should both be stoned. They were caught in the very act. How come the man's got away? And actually, when we come to think of it, how did they know where to find her in the very act of adultery, just when they needed to make an example of someone to trap Jesus? The whole thing stinks. These religious leaders, quivering in moral indignation, start to look like a bunch of shabby hypocrites. As Jesus says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone, which was the responsibility of the witnesses to a crime. They would be the first to throw a stone. They all start to slope off, starting with the elders. These upstanding religious leaders quickly turn out to be a bunch of dirty old men, hypocrites. So where does this leave us? Does it mean we should just give up on sexual ethics? We're all sinners, let's just accept it, live and let live. Well, no, I don't think that's what's going on here. It is a warning about judging one another. That much is true. We must examine ourselves and not just point a finger at other people's sin. I hope sincerely that we're not like the religious leaders here, getting outraged at other people's sin, but actually steeped in it ourselves. But is that all we can say? Is there anyone who is qualified to judge. When Jesus says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone, we're told in verse nine at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones or elders first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Only Jesus was left. Jesus is the one person who is without sin. Perhaps he might just be qualified to judge. Well, that's confirmed, I think, when we go back to the strange business of the writing on the ground. I've got a question for you. For those of you that know your Bibles, here we go. Who can tell me where else in the Bible we see uh, writing with a finger? Where else in the Bible do we see writing with a finger? Belshazzar's feast. Belshazzar's feast, yes, Daniel chapter five, the writing on the wall. But there's another place that's earlier in the Bible as well. Did I see a hand over there? Were you gonna say the same thing? Earlier in the Bible, writing with a finger. The tablets. The tablets, yeah, which tablets? The Ten Commandments, thank you, Paul, you know very well. The Ten Commandments. 
were written on the tablets of stone by the finger of God. And then, as Paul says, the, um, the writing on the wall, the message of condemnation on God's enemies in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar's feast. And there's one other place where we see writing that's significant to this passage, I think. Would you turn, please, to page 776, Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, page 776. Seven seven six, Jeremiah 17. You can see in verse 1 that God is giving the prophet Jeremiah a message of judgment on his remaining tribe of Judah at the time of the exile. It says, Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. Have a look at verse 10. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. And then Jeremiah responds. And look in particular at verse 13. Jeremiah says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be what? They'll be written in the dust. Why? Because they've forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Whoever put the story of the woman caught in adultery at this point in John's gospel knew exactly what they were doing. What has John just said in John chapter 7? If you've got a finger, flip back to John chapter 7. And verse 37, middle of the verse, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And yet how did they respond? They sneered at him. And they said in verse 48, have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. Just as Jeremiah said, they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. They are the true idolaters. They're the true adulterers in Bible imagery. And so when they come to try to trap Jesus, he crouches and writes on the ground. The finger that wrote the command, you shall not commit adultery. The finger that wrote the message of judgment on God's enemies for their misuse of the temple vessels, that finger was writing the very names of the leaders of Judah as they rejected the living water of the Lord Jesus. Who is qualified to judge? Jesus is qualified to judge. 
the message of this story is not anything goes, live and let live. The message of this story is beware of our own hypocrisy and be ready for the judgment of Jesus. We might not be sure whether this story belongs here, but we're not basing a point of principle on this text alone. When we look at it carefully, we find that it's beautifully consistent with everything else we see Jesus saying and doing elsewhere. And in fact, it's beautifully consistent with the message of the whole Bible. So much so that I struggle to believe that it could have been written without divine inspiration. The time for judgment is not yet. Jesus makes that clear throughout John's gospel and here as well. As he stands there suddenly alone with this surely trembling woman, he answers with such gentleness and compassion. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Neither do I condemn you. The time for judgment is not yet. The attempt to catch Jesus out only serves to demonstrate his divine purity, his worthiness to judge, and his willingness to forgive. Women, and sinners of all kinds, we are safe with Jesus. He doesn't stop there though, does he? Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, she is guilty and she does need to change. She needs to repent. And we need to do the same. As we come to Jesus, the only perfect man, the divine judge who sees our hearts, we must beware of hypocrisy. We must never be like the religious leaders pointing the finger at others but hiding our own sin. No, we come like the woman trembling, ashamed, but ready to fling ourselves on Jesus' mercy and call him, well, the word here isn't really sir, the word is curios, it means Lord. Some churches have a sign outside, come as you are. We could say the same, come as you are. If you feel you don't belong here, if you're conscious of your sin, maybe you're watching online because you don't feel good enough to show your face in church, come. Be reassured by Jesus' tender compassion with this poor, trembling woman who has been so harshly treated by the powerful hypocrites who opposed her. We are all sinners whether that's visible or not. Come as you are. But Jesus also says, 
Don't stay as you are. Don't stay as you are. In the words of Rabbi Ricky Gervais, we're all idiots sometimes, but actually he's wrong. The message is not to give up on godliness, but we all need to repent. If you're guilty of adultery, whether you're in an adulterous relationship at the moment, or you're guilty simply of adultery of the mind, or of the eyes, of the imagination, repent. If you're guilty of any sexual immorality, which according to the Bible is any sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman, hear Jesus' words, leave your life of sin. It's not true that anything goes, but it is true that in his kindness to us, Jesus is leaving us time to repent before the moment of judgment comes. Will we repent before the Lord and find the blessing of freedom, forgiveness, safety and honour with the Lord Jesus? Let me read that verse from Jeremiah again. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. We thank you, our Father God, that you have sent Jesus, your Son, the Lord, the spring of living water that cleanses, that satisfies, that brings life and washing, forgiveness, freedom and joy. We pray, our Father, that you, who know our hearts better than we know them ourselves, that you would expose to us our sin, our guilt, our shame. Please keep us from hypocrisy, seeing the sin of others and not our own. Please keep on bringing us to repentance. Please change us. Please make us ready for Jesus' mercy at the day of judgment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.